Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. One Samuel, chapter twenty, um, on page two nine two, starting at verse one. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, "What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life?" Never, Jonathan replied. "You are not going to die. Look." My father doesn't do anything, great or small, without confiding in me. Why should he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet, as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, "Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you." So David said, "Look, tomorrow is the new moon festival, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan." If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. And as for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, said Jonathan. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked. Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said. Let's go into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, "By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely." If I do not let you know and send you away safely, may the Lord be with you as He has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, "May the Lord call David's enemies to account." And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, "Tomorrow is the new moon festival. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, towards evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began, and wait by the stone Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say." Go, find the arrows. If I say to him, "Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, "Look, the arrows are beyond you. 
then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness because you and me, between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall, opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town, and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me go to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul held his spirit him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the month, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing of all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to town. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for reading. Uh, Let me uh, pray for us as we look at this Bible passage now. Heavenly Father, we've uh, sung that you are the faithful one, unchanging, uh, the rock of peace, the one that we can depend upon. And we pray that we'd uh, understand more of why that's not only true, but why it's sensible, uh, why it's smart uh, to trust you and you alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do keep uh, your Bible open at 1 Samuel 20. I think you'll find it particularly helpful this week to uh, dig out the uh, handout that uh, is tucked inside your bundle um, because there's a number of quotes and things on there. Uh, Even if you don't like taking notes, uh, do have that to hand. 
And being a Christian doesn't make you any friends. That's uh, what a young man in his mid-twenties said to me just a few weeks after he'd started to follow Jesus. Well, I said, I know what you mean, but just hang on a moment. Uh, it was at the end of an evening service at All Souls Langham Place, and there was about a thousand people around us. And so I pointed to them all and said, you can't say that being a Christian doesn't make you any friends. Still, I knew what he meant as he explained that as he told people that he'd become a Christian, he'd not got any favourable responses. His family were, were quite dismissive and, uh, and really quite patronising, suggesting it was just a religious phase that he was going through and that he'd soon grow out of it. His colleagues at work laughed at him. And one of his closest friends was really aggressive with him, telling him that he'd uh, been brainwashed, he must be off his rocker. Well, those weren't actually the words that his friend used, but it wouldn't be appropriate for me to repeat what he actually said. Now, I guess we can all relate to what that young Christian man experienced. I reckon some of those year four girls from Hero will soon be able to relate to what he experienced. I reckon some of those who've just been Christians at Events Week will be able to relate to what he experienced. Being a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ doesn't make you Mr. Popular. Sometimes you might even find yourself treated as the enemy and even by those you love the most. And that really hurts. And for that reason, you might wonder why you bother being a Christian. You might certainly be tempted to tone it down a little, to keep it quiet, to not to bring it up in conversation, uh, to be something of a closet Christian, at least some of the time. Well, look, as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20 this evening, uh, we'll see why following Jesus must be all or nothing, but we'll also see why giving Jesus everything, even though it doesn't make us any friends, even though it doesn't make us popular, it is still not only the best choice, but the smart choice. 1 Samuel chapter 20 is dominated by the biblical idea of, of covenant. Uh, you'll see the word covenant used in verse 8 and verse 16. All these references are on the handout. The backdrop to the events of chapter 20 uh, come, we saw it a few weeks back, chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, where we saw Jonathan making a covenant with David. But quite apart from the actual word covenant, we see covenant language and covenant ideas used throughout the chapter. Again, I've put it on the handout there. Oaths are made. A binding agreement is put in place. And the Lord is called upon as a witness. Uh, that's all language. They're all ideas of, of covenant a covenant uh, is a, a formal binding commitment or agreement, an agreement between two parties. Here it's between Jonathan and David. David being the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, if you will. We've seen that again and again. The Messiah simply means the Lord's anointed, the Lord's anointed king. And so as we look at Jonathan in covenant relationship with David, we see here what it means for us to be Christian, to enter into a covenant with the Messiah, with Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian, to be in a formal agreement with him. And we see why that's so important, why it's so crucial, why it's so good. And we'll also see what it does to us and what it means for us, that it means we won't be Mr. Popular. Now, with that as a backdrop to the chapter, let me uh, first set the scene and the first point, the scene, verses one to four. Uh, the chapter begins where we left off last week. Uh, most of you will have been here, some of you won't, but uh, we'll remember last week David was fleeing the murderous intentions of King Saul 
Verse 1, then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? You'll remember if you were here last week that chapter 19 was a chapter of four escape stories. Four times Saul set out to kill David and on each occasion David escaped. Or as we saw last week, on each occasion the Lord delivered David. But despite the Lord's deliverance, here is David at the beginning of chapter 20, still on the run from Saul, and now running to Jonathan, Saul's son, and asking Jonathan, verse 1, what have I done? Why is your dad trying to kill me? And at first glance, Jonathan's response is almost unbelievable. Verse 2, never, Jonathan replied, you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why should he hide this from me? It's not so. Jonathan's emphatic. My dad's not trying to kill you. But having read the previous chapter, we might ask, what planet is Jonathan on? It's pretty obvious to us that Saul is out to kill David. Jonathan just in denial? Well, look, remember, we the readers have far more information than Jonathan has. You often see this in television, good television programs. You know, you know a lot more than the people that are in it, don't you? And you're going, oh, don't do that, don't do that. But they do it. Well, Jonathan hasn't appeared in the story since verse 7 of chapter 19. The last thing Jonathan heard was in verse 6, his father Saul promising on oath and to the Lord never to harm David. So Jonathan's words in verse 2 are quite believable. And especially when we hear what a close relationship Jonathan had with his dad, and this is very important. You see, he says there in verse 2, my father wouldn't do anything without telling me first. We're like that. We're really close, me and my dad. I know always what's going on in his mind. Of course, we the readers know differently. We know that Saul has done nothing but hunt David down like a wild animal for the last chapter. We know the truth, and of course, so does David. He's been on the receiving end of all this and on the receiving end of Saul's henchmen. And so on oath, David says, verse 3, but... Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes and he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. David knows he's only a whisker away from meeting his maker. And David has worked out exactly why Saul hasn't told Jonathan about his murderous intentions. David knows that Saul knows that Jonathan's allegiance lies with David. Jonathan has made a covenant with David. As we've already seen, it is that allegiance, that commitment, that covenant that Jonathan has with David that dominates this chapter. And we see it first in Jonathan's words in verse four. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Those are remarkable words. Oh, they're amazing words for anybody to say to anybody. But remember, Jonathan was royalty. More than that, Jonathan was the crown prince. He was the son of King Saul. One day he would be king. All his life, you just imagine him as he's brought up, all his life he'd been told that one day he was going to be king and that people would do whatever he said. That people would do whatever he told them to do, they would do it. So verse 4 is remarkable. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Amazing words that are, of course, the outworking of Jonathan's covenant with David that began back in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. Do you remember if you were here a few weeks ago, 
those great verses where Jonathan took off his royal robe, having made a covenant, and he gave it to David. It was an act of abdication, Jonathan transferring his royal robes to David. You are the king, not me. Now in his words in chapter 20, verse 4, those words are the outworking of that covenant promise. And so with Jonathan ready to do whatever David wanted, David came up with a plan. And we come to our second point on the handout, the plan, verse 5. So David said, look, tomorrow is a new moon festival and I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him. David has earnestly asked me permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. There's the plan. Uh, For the Jews, the new moon uh, was an occasion for all sorts of festivals. I've put some references on the handout in case you want to follow them up. This was a biblical thing. This was a right thing for them to do. And the next day, we read in verse 7, was to be a new moon. And so David, who was, of course, the king's son-in-law and an esteemed warrior in Israel, David would have been expected to sit at the king's table on these important occasions, these times of festivities. So David's plan was to see if Saul intended to murder him, to see if he missed him, to see if he was angry when he wasn't there. Now again, at first glance, when you read through the story, you think this is ridiculous. Of course Saul wanted David dead. We've seen it all the way through chapter 19. Saul is hell-bent on killing David David has quite literally had to run for his life. David surely doesn't need any more evidence. Until we start to think about it, it's not so unreasonable. Do you remember where we left Saul last time? In the very last verse of chapter 19, we saw Saul overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, prophesying, no less. Is Saul even among the prophets? Here was Saul unable to resist the power of God's Spirit. So it is possible at the end of chapter 19, it is possible that Saul was a changed man. Changed by God, no longer out to kill David. Stranger things have happened. And so while David's pretty certain that David, that Saul is still out to kill him, it could be that he's changed. So David comes up with this plan to find out whether he still was in danger or not. And he says to Jonathan, As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself, why hand me over to your father? And there's the word again, covenant. And it comes to our third point on the handout, the covenant, verses 8 to 17. Now again, we've seen it already. David and Jonathan were in a covenant. And so now David asked Jonathan to live that out. See, Saul clearly is out to kill me. You're going to see that's the case. And I'm saying to you, Jonathan, who are you for? Me or your father? Now be sure, David is asking a lot of Jonathan here. Uh, we've already seen Jonathan had a very close relationship with his dad. Uh, but you see, that is the nature of being in a covenant. David is asking Jonathan to put him, David, above his own dad. He's actually asking Jonathan to deceive Saul, no less. David wasn't going off to Bethlehem at all. He was going to hide in a field. 
But he asked him to say that's what he was going to do. So this is no small thing for Jonathan to stand up for David against the dad that he thought he had a very close relationship with, but that's what it means to be in covenant relationship. It means putting the other first. And so David appeals to the covenant and in verse 8 he says, show me kindness or kill me. It's life or death. It's all very black and white. And again, that's how it is being in covenant relationship with the Messiah. It's black and white. It's all or nothing. At the end of last year, I was speaking to someone who's investigating the Christian faith and he said to me, it seems to me that to be a practicing Christian, it has to be all or nothing. But I don't understand why that's the case, he said. But we chatted some more. Uh, We talked about Christianity not being like joining the tennis club or the gym, but like being a marriage. Because at its heart, the Christian faith is about relationship with Jesus. See, I'm a member of a tennis club. And as a member of the club, having paid my subscription, I can get as involved as I want to be. I can go to the club as often as I like. I can go every day or I can leave it months without playing tennis or going anywhere near the club. And I'm still a member. But you don't need me to tell you that if I took that approach with my marriage, if I treated my wife and my marriage that way, I, as I treat my tennis membership, my marriage isn't going to last long. Marriage is, a, it, marriage is not a club, it's a covenant. See the difference? When you come to church, you're not coming to a club. Well, you might be. Well, then that's not Christianity. It's all or nothing because it's relationship with Jesus, not joining a club. It's a covenant with Jesus. That's my, why my allegiance to Jesus must come above all other relationships. I must forsake all others. It's all or nothing. Now, Jonathan knew that, verse 9. Never, he said, I'll never kill you. Now, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? See, Jonathan is clear. My allegiance to you, David, is greater than my allegiance to my father. If I thought my dad was going to harm you, David, I'd tell you. You're first, before my dad, forsaking all others. You're more important than him to me. That's covenant. So they've made the plan. And now in verse 10, David asks how he'll know how Saul reacts at at the new moon festivities. So verse 11, they go into a field to discuss that point and presumably they go into a field to make sure that they're out of earshot of everybody else because this is getting dangerous. But while they're out in the field, what we hear Jonathan say to David is remarkable and uh, we're over the page now on the handout if you're still following along. You see, I'm convinced that verses 12 to 17 are the key to understanding the point of this whole chapter and the key to understanding why following the Messiah and being in covenant with the Messiah is the best choice, even though it means we're put in danger. In verses 12 and 13, we see Jonathan committing himself to David and his kingdom again. Look at verse 12. Jonathan said to David, By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send word uh, and send you away safely. And look at this last phrase. May the Lord be with you 
as he has been with my father. Now it's that last phrase in verse 13 that is so important. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Or it should, would better be translated, and I've put this on the handout. May the Lord be with you as he was, past tense, with my father. Not as he has been and still is now, but as he was in the past. Now, put your brain in gear for a moment. It's not complicated, but just stay with it for a moment. The way the Lord was with Saul in the past was to anoint him with his spirit. By this point in the story, we know that the spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul. I've put that again the handout, on the handout, all these references are on there. But here's the point. The spirit had been with Saul for the express purpose of Saul being king. So here in verse 13, Jonathan is asking for the Lord to be with David as he was in the past with Saul. Jonathan was asking that David be king. Now remember, Jonathan is the crown prince. He's in line for the throne, but he wants David to be king. More than that, he believes David will be king. John Woodhouse explains, helpful handout, on the handout, helpful quote. The Hebrew is more ambiguous than our English translation. It could be taken to be not a petition, but a prediction. The Lord will be with you as he was with my father. Understood in this way, Jonathan's words express a confidence that David will be king that David will be God's king now if that's right and as we read on I think you'll see that it is right if that's right then these words of Jonathan show extraordinary understanding and great faith on Jonathan's part for Jonathan speaks in a way that he show that shows that he is sure of David's future reign in all the earth as he says and I'm going to ask you to look at the handout here from verse 14 because I've taken the ESV translation which I think is better He says, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. These are amazing words. Underline them. uh, Commit them to memory. uh, Say this is a great part of the Bible to remember. In these verses, Jonathan speaks of David's kingdom being everlasting see verse 15 do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever and in these verses Jonathan speaks of a day when all David's enemies will be defeated again verse 15 when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth now if you put all that together we see Jonathan is confident of a coming day when David will be king when he will rule over an everlasting kingdom where he will reign supreme in all the earth and all his enemies will be defeated. Of course, that's exactly what we believe, that one from David's line, not King David, but great King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, he is king. And there will come a day when Jesus will reign supreme over all the earth in the new heavens and the new earth and all his enemies will be defeated and his kingdom will last forever for eternity. Isn't that what you and I believe as Christians? Of course it is. Remarkably, Jonathan understood that. Well, not as clearly as we did, but almost. And so with amazing insight, Jonathan asked David for mercy for him and his family. See there, verse 14, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. Now, I got quite carried away with that, didn't I? Because I'm quite excited about these verses. But if you've just got lost for a minute, here's 
where we come back. Here's the big point about the covenant. Here's why it matters to be in covenant with God's Messiah. Jonathan says to David, we've entered into a covenant. We've entered into this this binding agreement. So, David, when you reign supreme, when you defeat all your enemies, you have to show me steadfast love. Remember, we're in a covenant relationship, and that means I'm not one of your enemies. But more than that, that means that I'm going to be on the receiving end of your loving kindness forever. And I know that's the point because that's how it's summed up in verse 16. Verse 16, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account and Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Now do we see why it's so important that Jonathan establishes this with David? And we see why it's so important when we understand that in Jonathan's day, a new dynasty as David's new kingdom would be. A new dynasty would ensure their future reign by purging every known survivor of the previous regime. We see that happening in the pages of the Bible. Again, you'll see the references on the handout. And Jonathan doesn't want David to do that to him and his family. And so he appeals to David's steadfast love and to the covenant they've made. Very simply, Jonathan says, when you come in your kingdom... Remember me. Have mercy and remember me and my family. Now that's where we see how sensible it is to make a covenant with the one who will reign forever. Here we see what a smart move it is to be in covenant with the one who will wipe all his enemies off the face of the earth. I don't want to be an enemy of him. And here we see how wonderful it is to be in a covenant relationship with the one who will show me steadfast love forever. And so Jonathan is a brilliant example to us, teaching us that we should look to the future kingdom that is coming, knowing that Christ will reign one day. And here's the big thing. Jonathan took the future kingdom of the Messiah more seriously than the present dangers he faced. Real and serious dangers though they were, Jonathan made his peace with the future king, even though the present king was one to be feared. We rarely think about the future, do we? The best I can ever get anybody to think about in terms of the future is their retirement, it seems. But they never think beyond death. And they think about their retirement and they think about their lovely cottage in the country and that they're going to have a lovely 30 years of good health in their cottage in the country. Dream on. There might be a few people that have that, but most people don't. Because even when they get there, they don't have that many years or they don't have many good years, good health. And yet we keep dreaming about that future. But Jonathan's brilliant because he looks to the real future that counts. And he says, I'm going to look ahead to a future that really counts, that is really secure. And I'm going to invest in that, even if it means that now it hurts. That's really good long-term investment. It is, of course, what Jesus said to his disciples, this whole thing of, Uh, making your peace with the king, even though there might be a present king who is to be feared. Jesus said to his disciples very similarly, didn't he? Verse 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, again, it's on the handout. Do not be afraid of them, that is, those who are enemies of the gospel, those who would persecute Jesus' followers. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Be afraid of being an enemy of the Messiah. Do you see it is by far the best option to be part of Jesus' kingdom and be on side with him, the one who will reign forever and who will reign supreme over all than to get into bed with those who are Jesus' enemies. It is better to opt for his everlasting kingdom even though it brings us danger now and it will bring us danger now. And that's what we see in the rest of the chapter and very briefly uh, we look at the fourth point, the outcome. In verses 18 to 23, Jonathan stretched out a plan, a, 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 sketched out a plan of how he would tell David how Saul reacted at the new moon festivities. And then came the day, verse 24, just as they arranged, David hid in a field rather than going to the new moon festival. Everyone took their seats at the banquet, verse 25, the king, Jonathan, Abner, he was the commander-in-chief of Saul's army. But you see it there at the end of verse 25, David's place was empty. Verse 26, Saul said nothing that day, thinking there was a reasonable explanation for David's absence. And when I read that, I just imagine Jonathan thinking, oh, I was right, what a relief. My dad's not out to get him after all. I can be in relationship with Jonathan, uh, with David, and I can stay friends with my dad. But the next day, it all went pear-shaped. Verse 27, the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favour in your eyes, let me go to see my brothers. That is why he's not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your, the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. I feel really sad for Jonathan when I read that. In that outburst, everything Jonathan believed came crashing down. He thought that Saul wasn't after David, and now he knows that Saul was determined to kill David. But here's the thing. Jonathan believed that Saul, his father, loved him. And now he knew that he didn't. How devastating for Jonathan to hear his own father shout at him, verse 30, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I think that's put quite politely, actually. The Americans have an expression that starts you son of, but I can't say it. I think that's what's going on. And how devastating for Jonathan to hear Saul say the words in verse 31. In one last desperate throw of the dice, Saul bellowed out his command. As long as the son of David, Jesse, lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Do you see what Saul appeals to? He appeals to Jonathan on the basis of Jonathan's own self-advancement. If you want to be king, son, you've got to kill him. That's the voice we're hearing all the time, isn't it? You'd be much better. You'd get on much better without Jesus. If you want to be king in this world, don't follow him. 
It's a key moment. Would Jonathan remain faithful to the covenant? And would Jonathan put loyalty to the Lord's anointed above loyalty to his father? Remember how powerful his father is. Remember the anger. Remember the the, the way he reacts. Yet wonderfully, Jonathan was true to his word and he kept his covenant and spoke up in defense of David, verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. And now in that moment, we know that Jonathan is an enemy of Saul because throwing his spear at Jonathan was exactly what Saul did to David. So you see, to be in covenant with the Messiah gives us wonderful security for the future. It guarantees us eternal future beyond the grave in the loving presence of God's Messiah forever. But it puts us in huge danger in the present. As that young man said to me all those years ago, it makes us no friends. For people in this world hate the Messiah. And so when you and I are on the side of the Messiah, we will be hated too. Jesus himself said it. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Not they might, they will. Entering into a covenant with the Lord's anointed makes us the enemy of the Lord's enemies. Jonathan came to know that on that day. And so, verse 34, Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. And on that second day of the month, he didn't eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. And to cut this long story just a little shorter, in the verses that follow, we see Jonathan keeping his promise to warn David. In those last verses, which you can read uh, on your own when you get home, Jonathan put his life in danger out of his love for the Lord's anointed. He warned him. So what about you? Have you made a covenant with the Messiah? It is the only way to have ultimate security. It won't make you popular, but it's the only way to have a secure and certain eternal future. And if you have made a covenant with Jesus, if you would call yourself a Christian, have you kept the covenant? It means giving Jesus everything. That's the deal. It's all or nothing. It's black and white. It will bring you into conflict with those who are not in the covenant. It might even make you an enemy of the ones you love the most. But you see, it's not only the right thing to do, it really is the smart choice. And wonderfully, even though you and I break the covenant, remember that Jesus never breaks his side of the bargain. And when we look at the cross, we remember his death means that there's always a way back. And so if you've drifted, come back tonight. Remake the covenant with him. Promise to be his for the rest of your days. And he will never let you down. For he is the faithful one, unchanging, the rock of peace. You can depend on him. Let's pray. We thank you, our Lord and God.
Now that we wonderfully can be in a covenant relationship with the King. Now we thank you that you really are the one who initiates that covenant. You're the one who makes it. You're the one who does all the running. Our part is small. And yet we ask you to help us to do it. We pray that we would see the eternal uh, long-term future that Jonathan saw. We'd have the same clarity of thought, especially when we realise that being in covenant with the king means that we're going to be making enemies with others. And so we ask you, Heavenly Father, to help us to have that kind of clarity and that kind of commitment. May we spur each other on in these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.